what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. I refuse to let my family die in vain. So whatever I can do to promote safe driving, I'll do it. He was born to be a dad. He was all that and more. He was like the Michael Keaton in the Mr. Mom movie. She was tough. She was fierce. She was a force to be reckoned with because when she had something to say, she would say it. There really are no words to describe Bridget. She was just, she was all that and more. When I had cancer, we prepared my husband and my two little girls that mommy's not going to be here. There was nothing more the doctors can do. And then miraculously, I survived. Doctors still don't know why I'm here. But then I have people like you and other advocates saying, nope, there was a job for you. It wasn't your time. Welcome, everyone, to the Keep Kids Alive podcast. I'm Tom Everson. I'm the executive director and founder of Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And uh, this month, uh, our guest is Pam O'Donnell from Bayonne, New Jersey. Did I pr- pronounce Bayonne right? Yes, you did. And thank you for having me. Okay. Well, uh, good to have you, Pam. Pam has quite a story to share about her husband, Tim, and her daughter, Bridget, and the creation of the Catch You Later Foundation. And we'll learn about all of those things and probably a lot more during our conversation. So glad to have you here, Pam. You know, one of the things I always like to start out with is a question is, how did we connect? If I'm correct, I think it was on LinkedIn. Okay. I think, and then either you or I sent a private message to each other. Uh-huh. But I kind of follow all the distracted driving and paired driving pages and... I believe that's how we came across it. Am I correct in that? Or is there another story? I, I think that's accurate enough. There are so many ways to connect these days. And uh, there are an awful lot of uh, traffic safety advocates uh, who are on LinkedIn and uh, doing wonderful work uh, all across the country. I think the work that you're doing uh, stands out in a particular way in what you've set up in honor of uh, and memory of Tim and, and Bridget. And so that's why I'd like to just invite you to, to share your story about Tim and about Bridget and about what's happened and uh, what you've been able to do in the aftermath of their deaths. Oh, well, thank you for having me. That was the first time anybody said that my foundation or what I'm doing is a little bit more different than what everybody else is doing. So I appreciate that. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but I hope it is. <laughs> Our story is, you know, it's one of 40,000 other families, you know, every year, 40,000 people die of a distracted or impaired driving or 100% preventable car crash. Sadly, in 2016, February 22nd at 7.45 a.m. was the last time I saw my husband and my five-year-old daughter, Bridget, alive. We said goodbye. My husband took his car and our two little girls with him. He was driving them to school. I was going to work. He made a right. I made a left. And that was the last time I saw half of my family. Later on that day, it was a Monday, beautiful. Sun was shining. Uh, There was no snow or ice. There was no road conditions. Uh, This crash was 100% preventable. My husband was driving home from work. He was a school teacher. 
My daughter was safely strapped in her car seat behind him uh, in the passenger seat, right directly behind the driver's seat. And he was stopped at a toll plaza getting a ticket to pay the toll. So he was doing zero miles an hour when an impaired driver that had driven miles and miles through New York City and then through the Holland Tunnel, bouncing off the walls of the Holland Tunnel and came up the New Jersey Turnpike ramp and plowed into them going 55 miles per hour in a five mile per hour zone. They were propelled into oncoming traffic. My husband was deceased immediately. My daughter, they didn't even know my daughter was in the car for 30 or so minutes because the trunk of the car was literally in the front of the car. So they took my husband to the medical examiners automatically. From what I understand, they will not leave a child on the road and wait for a medical examiner. So they immediately took her to the hospital because they didn't know that she was dead. So they did, you know, the MRIs and all that stuff, but she was already gone by 320. The car crash was at 319 at 320. She was dead. So this upcoming February 22nd is our fifth anniversary. And this is a big one. My daughter will then be dead one minute longer than alive. That's a hard realization to come to. It happens every day. We are, we are just one story of thousands. And I set up a foundation called the Catch You Later Foundation, where I started out as just giving out scholarships. And it kind of grew into now I go out to high schools, corporate companies, church groups, anybody that will listen. Because uh, sadly, our stories like ours, we don't get the big press that it should, like the CNN town halls, Datelines, NBC 2020s. So I just, I refuse to let my family die in vain. So whatever I can do to promote safe driving, I'll do it. And where did the uh, the title Catch You Later come from? Uh, my husband was a softball coach and I grew up playing baseball and softball. So that was in our blood and he would never say goodbye. It would always be like, catch you later, you know, catch you later, Tom, whatever, whatever scenario he was in. And a week after the crash, his former students and players held a fundraiser. And I walked into this room and they were all wearing these shirts that said, catch you later. And it had a softball and angel wings on it. And I thought, that's it. That was it. And I went to the former student and I said, can we use that? Can we steal that from you and use that for our foundation? And it just evolved from there. So it's it was really a labor of love of his students. Okay, Well, that's, that's good to hear. I, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit uh, and just invite you to share uh, with our listeners uh, about Tim. You know, what kind of person was Tim? Wow. Tim was... Um, there really are no words. He just, uh, he, he was a beloved school teacher. He wanted to either be a teacher or a chef. He was an amazing cook, but he, he was born to be a teacher. He did it for the right reasons. There's one story that I, I said in my victim impact statement. Uh, there was a, a student coming into class late 
not doing her homework. He could see that she had stress, anxiety. He sat down and talked to her to find out that her mom was dying of breast cancer. Now, I'm also a cancer survivor, so that's another issue that comes into play. And he was the type of teacher that came home to me and said, if this student's mother dies, would it be okay if she came to live with us? Because he would hate for her to be alone and put into the foster system. So to this day, five years later, sadly, I don't know what happened to that student because I wasn't a teacher. So, but he loved his students. He would do anything to help them. He never thought he would be a dad. And then I came along and he had two beautiful girls and he was just, he was born to be a dad. He was all that and, and more. He was like the Michael Keaton in the Mr. Mom movie, you know, because he was a teacher. So he got out early. So he was the one that was always with them. When I was working, I didn't get home till seven or eight at night. And he just, he was all that and more. There isn't a person that knew him that could say anything bad. And I know, you know, we all say good things about our family members but there really isn't, I'm not just being partial. He was just, I can't believe he married me. I really don't know how I landed this guy. So that was a shock. He was a, uh, the, the comedy show Frasier. He had that dry, very smart sense of humor. He made me laugh all the time. He was just, you know, he was just that good guy. You know, we, we just had a snowstorm. We were in a blizzard. And he would be that guy that would go and snowplow everybody's house without even asking. And, you know, he was one in a million. He, we lost the world, lost a good one with him. I don't even know. All I can do is kind of sigh and, and say, wow, you know, because, uh, you know, I certainly would have liked to have, uh, you know, met and known Tim when he was alive. And I appreciate you sharing, uh, you know, a bit about him and uh, the qualities that made him who he is and who he always will be for all the people whose lives he touched. Yeah. It, it's sad, but um, it was a beautiful sight to see, but for a really bad occasion to see how many of his students that had never been to a funeral, they have never seen a dead body. They came. I mean, we had 5,000 people at the funeral home. People were on lines for hours, five to six hours to come and most of them was his school. And it, it was just, and I keep it five years later, and it's his students that carry me through. We keep in touch, particularly his softball team, because he called them his girls, but they're my girls now. And these girls are 28, 29, 30 years old, and they have families of their, of their own. And it's sad because their own kids should be coached by him. And they're not here to my now only daughter stop playing softball because she's not going to be coached by her dad. And he was just that guy. The outpouring of love from his students are it's just amazing. I could be walking in a park and some stranger will walk up to me and say, are you Mr. O'Donnell's wife? And I'll say yes. And they said, well, I used to be one of his students. And then they just fall into my arms and cry. He left a legacy and, and to see his students thrive and they always talk about him, uh, especially now with the anniversary coming up. 
he's not forgotten and I'm forever grateful for them. You know, it occurs to me, Pam, that, uh, you know, when you talk about, you know, former players of his, uh, who are you know, now in their late twenties and, you know, maybe some of them have children themselves, but, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, his influence as a coach that they're coaching their kids in a way, just in terms of the way that they raise them and, uh, from the lessons that they learn from him and that that's a, a way that uh, he continues to be very much alive in influencing people whose lives he touched. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the letters these students wrote to me after the funeral, I have them in a book and I read them from time to time. This is the month for the anniversary. You don't come across many men like him and, and many teachers and coaches like him. So he was, he was, he was a good guy. I want to invite you to talk about Bridget. Uh, you know, what was her spirit? Bridget was five years old. She was our, our youngest daughter. She was rainbows and unicorns and trouble. And <laughs> she just brightened up any room she walked into. She was just silly. She loved to be naked no matter where we went, we would go into a restaurant and next thing you know, she would just be completely naked. Didn't have a care in the world. My husband and I joked that we would have a separate bank account for her because we knew at some point in her life she would get arrested. <laughs> but in, for a good reason, for just for injustice, she didn't like racial injustice. Uh, one of her heroes was Martin Luther King Jr., which at five years old, like who, you know, who, who does that at five? She, she, Martin Luther King Day was bigger than Santa Claus for her. She didn't like bullies. So we had imagined her being the one that would go out and protest to a sit-in. We imagined her getting handcuffed, but again, for the right reasons, not for, you know, just for believing in, you know, going through with what she believed in. She was our peace, love, and happiness child. There was one time she was a, a soccer player and her teammate got hurt. He fell and there was just blood coming out of his knee and she wouldn't leave his side. She took off her headband, took off her shirt, put it on his knee, sat there topless. You know, she grew up really fast because in 2014, like I said, I'm a cancer survivor and she was the very few times I was home from the hospital. She would wake up, you know, that saying, don't wake a sleeping baby. Well, she would wake up every two hours to make sure she was with me holding my hands when I had to get my medicine or my painkillers. She would run into the kitchen and she would hold my hand and she was again naked, always naked. And she would say, okay, mom, one, two, three, here it comes. She would help my husband give me the shot. She'd run back to bed and two hours later, she would come back and do it again. So we never set an alarm. She just programmed herself to wake up every two hours. And she wanted to be a cancer curing singing doctor. Besides her daddy and Martin Luther King, she was a big fan of John Lewis, who sadly passed away. She was also a big fan of my oncologist. And he would welcome her into the chemo room 
where other patients were getting their therapy. And she, he would just let her run around and talk to people. And she just lit up every everybody's lives. But she was trouble. She also wanted to be a tight end for the New York Giants. <laughs> so she was tough. She was my, the little boy I always wanted, but the little girl all mushed in together. She was tough. She was fierce. She was a force to be reckoned with because when she had something to say, she would say it. And she was stern about it. But as well as stern, she was polite. Man, there there really are no words to describe Bridget. She was just, she was all that and more. Maybe that's the way to put it. She was all that and more because uh, there were so many words that, you know, helped to, that you used to describe her that really help us to appreciate who Bridget uh, was, but who Bridget always will be because of your experience of her as her mom uh, and the experience of so many other people whose uh, lives she was able to touch. You know, it's amazing uh, the display of empathy that Bridget had uh, for you and for other people as well. I say that's uh, very much a credit to you and to Tim as parents uh, as well and what you uh, allowed her to learn and exposed her to and helped her to, to grow the person, to be the person she was at five years old. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That That's, that's so um, humbled by those words. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. I want to invite you to talk a little bit more about the Catch You Later Foundation. You mentioned that uh, you started out with scholarships, but there are, I know there are other things that the foundation is doing, and uh, our listeners will be hearing this probably about a month after uh, the anniversary of Tim and Bridge's death, but you are honoring them in a very special way this year, and especially in the midst of this pandemic, you came up with an idea that I just find to be both fascinating and admirable all at once. Uh, so I invite you to share that. Oh, sure. So yeah, the Catch You Later Foundation, you know, it started out as just giving out scholarships. You know, there's so many of our foundations like this that parents just have to do something. And then I, it was Christmas of 2016, our first Christmas without half our family. And we were at our local church. My older daughter was, was doing the the reenactment of the birth of Christ and in front of the congregation, the uh, Marie Pope, she's that's actually her name. So we call her the Pope of Bayonne. <laughs> she's such a sweet lady. And I just, it was our first Christmas. So that was already emotional. So I kind of sat in the back by myself. I didn't want to make it about me or my daughter. I was just proud that my daughter was going through with it. And Marie tends to grab the microphone and starts to talk. And, you know, she she's just a lovely, lovely lady. And I had a feeling. Did you ever get that feeling? So she started to talk about the power of prayer and what the holiday truly means. And out of nowhere, she just said, Pam O'Donnell, will you come up and talk? So that was really my first interaction of speaking about distracted and impaired driving and what had happened to our family. And I had previously spoken about cancer, which I'm sure we'll get into, but she propelled me into sharing our story in front of, I don't know, 500 people. 
And then a week later, she asked me to talk to students at a, um, a retreat, a religious retreat. And I said, Oh my goodness. Like I, I don't, I'm just me. I didn't have anything. I didn't have any handouts or anything like that. So I called up AAA of Northeast, told them who I was and asked them if I, if they had any handouts. And next thing you know, I hooked up with AAA of Northeast. So they started inviting me to go with them and talking to high schools, corporate companies, church groups, wherever AAA Northeast goes, they kind of asked me to tag along. So this has been going on for going on five years now. But with COVID, every year we would have a candlelight vigil. And we're not sure whether we're going to be able to have it because of COVID restrictions. And me and my bright ideas, which sometimes I wish I don't have these bright ideas, because as you know, Tom, <laughs> you're, you're waiting for what's getting mailed out to you. I, I started this, I had this sign made up and thought, all right, we're just going to do the city of Bayonne. And if I could get as many people to do in memory of Tim and Bridget, so we have a sign, not knowing if we're going to be able to do the candlelight vigil. And then somebody else from another state said, oh, I would like a sign. And I thought, wow, let's do signs across America. Because when I had cancer, we had been hoping that my daughters all wanted to get into a Winnebago. And we wanted to visit every state. And I thought, oh, so if other people in states want this sign, let's do signs across America, which kind of exploded because I just needed one person in each state so that we would have one sign in each state. Now we have like 20 signs going to Hawaii. You were kind enough to get us some addresses. It's kind of exploded into this crazy thing that we're doing. And we also have a billboard going up uh, not too far away from the car crash uh, for the month of February. I just felt with this year, I feel like this is all about Bridget. Yes, I, I miss my husband. I love my husband. They both passed away. But the fact that she will be dead longer than alive, I'm really still trying to come to grips with that. So I felt like we have to go big this year. So we are doing signs across America. Still need some to be mailed out. But with this blizzard we just had, you will be getting yours soon. And then, you know, I think we briefly talked about the Pikes Peak that you do. We are so honored to be part of it and so honored to have, you know, been able to talk to you and and work together and spread awareness. Because when I was fighting my cancer, I, we were watching a show called Monkey Garage or Garage Monkey. And um, one of the drivers went up Pike's Peak and I, I said, oh, my goodness, like I would love to be there. And my husband whispered in my ear as I lay dying, when you beat this, we're going to go to Pike's Peak. And then you kind of just magically appeared in my life. So it was always a goal, but we never thought that goal would be achieved because we thought I wasn't going to be here. And sadly, when I had cancer, we prepared my husband and my two little girls that mommy's not going to be here. There was nothing more the doctors can do. And then miraculously, I survived. 
Doctors to this day, I'm six years out, cancer-free. Doctors still don't know why I'm here. But then I have people like you and other advocates saying, nope, there was a job for you. It wasn't your time. We had the greatest year in 2015. We renewed our wedding vows twice. Uh, we were planning that Winnebago trip across the country. And then sadly, February of 2016 came and it's now just me and my one daughter. And here we are. And the foundation to this date, we've given out $25,000 in scholarships. And I go to high schools. We're able to buy the impaired goggles, the drunk goggles, marijuana goggles. We just got the LSD goggles. So not only do I talk about what happened, one of the things that I notice is other advocates, they go into statistics and then I come on and you never really see or hear about what happens after you see the news crews or the headline science teacher and daughter killed in a car crash. So I tell my story about the whole legal process. You know, people have a misconception that it's a law and order episode and they're going to get justice right away. And it has been a three and a half year battle through the legal system. We just got a conviction in 2018 because COVID happened last year. I'm sorry, 2019, he was convicted. But that was a three and a half year long battle. And people don't understand the stress, the anxiety. I'm a cancer survivor. My doctor, I, I'm six years out, like I said, I should not be going to the oncologist as much as I do. But he also, he had a great relationship with my husband and my daughter. He was our best man at one of our vow renewals. He was the man that saved my life. So who better to be our best man? So I go and see him at least once a week. He at least checks my blood, you know, and, and I go out and talk to these students. And I can't tell you the feedback, you know, numbers kind of bore kids. So you can give all the statistics you want, which are great because they need to know for approximately 40,000 people die every year. The number one killer of teens is car crashes. A hundred people die every day. They need to know that, but they also need to know the ramifications of it. What happens to a family? Sadly, just this past September, my daughter had to be hospitalized because of severe depression and anxiety. Yes, the car crashed, the anniversary coming up, but then COVID happened and the quarantine. You know, we used to be a family of four and a lively, loud house, and we're not that anymore. So she should be doing virtual learning with her sister right next to her, and she's not. So I now go out and tell that part of the story, and it resonates with people. And if I could just save one person from making a better decision when they get behind a wheel of what I call a weapon of mass destruction, I feel like my job has been done, and my daughter and husband haven't died in vain. So... I just do what I do. Well, it reminds me that the data is important because the data should help point us in a direction that needs to be about the direction that of towards behaviors that need to be addressed as to why people die or why people are severely injured in, in car crashes. But what it comes right down to is uh, 
you know, the two questions I always like to ask is who do you love and who loves you? Because our answers to those questions uh, should be all the reason that we ever need to slow down, to not drink and drive, to put the cell phone aside, to behave in a way that acts like we really want to come home and that we want our loved ones to come home to us as well. That it's really about relationships and your story and sharing about uh, your relationship with Tim, your relationship with Bridget, their relationships with other people who cared about them, who loved them and who they loved as well. Those are the reasons that hopefully would really get into our, our hearts and souls and the sinew of who we are to motivate us to, uh, to act in a way that shows that uh, we respect everyone who's on and along roadways and including ourselves when we're out in a motor vehicle. Exactly. Yes. Somebody once said to me, everything affects everybody, whether you know it or not. And I found that to be so profound because nobody realized how one of the things that happened with the crash were, again, going back to my husband being a teacher, the first responders were my husband's former students. They were students that he taught. So two of the firefighters were not allowed to go back to work for almost six months because they lived with the guilt that they couldn't save them. And they tried everything that they could. And especially knowing them and knowing that there was a baby in the back seat. So I know what it's done to the first responders. The, the ambulance, the EMTs, they were also my husband's former students, some that I had never met. But the two firefighters were students that I knew, I loved. They were part of our family. One of them was mar- is married to my husband's former softball player. And it's, it's we've kind of come full circle. And people don't realize the effect that it has on the EMTs, the police, the first responders, firemen. They go out every single day and see carnage and destruction. And when it's 100% preventable, it makes it even worse because it should never have happened. You know, Pam, I I really appreciate you uh, pointing that out because I do believe that that's something that gets lost uh, to the general public of how many people are affected when a crash happens. Uh, it reminds me of uh, all the way back in 2001, uh, we had three people who who died, two children, and they were both named Shannon. They were both seven years old, and they died within 20 minutes of each other uh, here in Omaha, uh, where we're based. I received lots and lots and lots of uh, phone calls from people who uh, they wanted to get one of our Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 yard signs. They just It was kind of an impulsive response that they just wanted to put out something you know, in their, their yards. And, uh, I remember dropping one off to, uh, a home, uh, here in Omaha, the woman opened the door and, and she said, you know, my husband will be so glad that to see this when he gets home. And, you know, I asked her why. And she said, well, he was the first one on the scene, you know, when Shannon, the two Shannons, one was a boy, Shannon, one was a girl, Shannon, but, uh, uh, little boy, Shannon, uh, when he was hit on his bike, said he was the first one on the scene and it kind of punctuated that moment that, wow, you know, I didn't expect that to happen. But you think about, you know, the nurses, the doctors in the uh, emergency rooms and 
all of the uh, the folks who are involved and who are touched that oftentimes we we just don't think about how they are not only involved in trying to preserve lives, but also uh, their own feelings as human beings that uh, about how they're affected and when they go home or you know when they consider what's happened that day. So I really appreciate you pointing that out because I I think that it's an invitation for all of us to have empathy with all the people who you know, put their, their lives out there in order to try to be supportive, in order to try to preserve lives whenever it's possible to do that and how they're affected when, when that just does not, is not possible. Right. People seem to forget that. I I was doing a, I did a speech somewhere and I got off the stage and this Nice, very nice man came up to me and he had tears in his eyes and he said, you don't know who I am, do you? And I said, no, I'm sorry. And he said, I was one of the first people on the, on the scene of the crash. And he said, I don't want to show you something. And he just started to cry. And he showed me a picture of his daughter, who is exactly the same age as my Bridget. And he said, when I got there and they finally got her out of the car, he thought, why is my daughter in this man's car? He thought it was his own daughter and we are forever connected. We both basically fell into each other's arms and cried and hugged. I consider him a dear friend. Now he he's the one that said to me, I just want you to know I couldn't let her go in the ambulance alone. And I went with her and I was stroking her hair, holding her hand and telling her that she was loved. And I am forever grateful for that, to know that in a weird way, you know, my husband's students, they were there. And then when I found out the full story after the criminal case was over and I was finally able to talk to the first responders, the state troopers, because you have to wait until all the criminal case is over. I've talked to many of them. They've contacted me. And they kind of filled in the dots and the missing links to everything that happened that day. But to know that my husband and daughter died with his students around him, students that knew my daughter as a baby, because she did go to the school that he worked at, the daycare for the the teachers. So everybody knew her. She used to escape from, you know, she'd be running around the high school. And to know that they were there. I know my husband and daughter didn't die alone. They died surrounded by people that love them. They were able to tell me that while they were extricating them from the car, my his phone kept ringing and it was me that was calling. So I never knew that until about six months ago when they told me. So it brought me some comfort that in a weird way, I was there. And, you know, you, you don't want your family to die alone. You don't want them to die, let alone die alone. And they were able to let me know that, no, you kept ringing that phone. You were there. You were right there. And they picked up the phone and the firefighter, he said, it's Pam. It's Pam. It's his wife. What do we do? And nobody would pick up the phone. Nobody would answer the phone because it was a hard task for them to tell me. I have a newfound love for first responders. One of them was afraid that I would hate them. He was, he was, didn't want to talk to me 
And for three years, all I ever wanted to do was talk to him and say, I want to thank you. I know that you tried your hardest because like you said, they are human. They go home, they live with this and it affects them. And, you know, we all have to remember that, you know, it's one of the greatest quotes that somebody ever told me. Everything affects everyone, whether you know it or not. And, you know, so many people were affected by this. Not only the town that I live in, but the town that my husband taught in. So this was big. This was big. And um, I didn't intend to become an advocate. It just kind of happened. But it's the way I grieve. It's the only way I could get through it. I have seen other people lose their loved ones in a similar manner. And, you know, I had several choices. Options were either take all of my cancer meds that I was still on and just, you know, be done or pack up and leave, or I am going to get my life together and try to be the example for my daughter that, she can't expect anything from this world because she suffered a loss, which is a major loss that she needs to go on and excel and be good at school. And, you know, still, she, I didn't want her to grow up and be bitter. And sadly, I do see some p- people that are bitter or feel that they are owed something because they lost their family the way we did. But I can't, I won't let my daughter live that life. I need to be the example. I have big shoes to fill with my husband. My husband was my now only daughter's favorite parent. I was not her favorite. So it kind of, you know, we're still a work in progress. We're trying to get our relationship together and on point. But every day is a struggle. It's five years later and it's it's like it just happened yesterday. There isn't a day that goes by that we don't think about them. Well, I was thinking uh, a few things, uh, you know, as you were sharing about how everything affects, we have no idea the effect that any one incident has on any number of people. But in talking about the the first responders, you know, I'd invite our, our listeners to consider the effect that those first responders should have on our own lives in terms of, of how we conduct ourselves in kindness and compassion, because they displayed that and, and beyond. Uh, in caring for uh, for Tim and for Bridget and for you and uh, your daughter as well. It was a wonderful way to care for Tim, for Bridget, for you, for Allie, and to be able to share those stories about uh, lived compassion, uh, you know, something that, uh, you know, I don't think that we could ever get too much of in this world. So, you know, I, I just feel privileged to be able to hear the stories of uh, that you're sharing. You know, because certainly it it affects me, but I hope that it would affect our our listeners as well. You know, one of the things, Pam, um, and I think I may have shared with you a little bit about this, is that one of the things that we uh, uh, I can't say that we we started; it just kind of uh, evolved over time with uh, my work with Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 is an initiative that we call Live Forward that focuses in on bringing good into the world in honor of loved ones who've died in traffic incidents. And to me, that's where I felt an immediate connection with you and with the mission of uh, Catch You Later Foundation, because 
It's such a concrete example of bringing good into the world in honor of Tim, in honor of Bridget. And, uh, you know, as you've lived forward over these past uh, five years, are there some lessons or some highlights that you might want to share with our listeners that have helped to carry you through? I know you've mentioned, you know, many in terms of, you know, Tim's uh, students and softball players and your oncologist and the first responders and Marie Pope, is that her name? Marie Pope, yes. She's the Pope of Bayonne. <laughs> yeah, because uh, one of the things I, I wanted to go back on that was because when you were sharing about the uh, invitation to come and share at that Christmas Eve mass, I wanted to make sure that our listeners knew that it was Marie Pope who invited you up and not Allie. <laughs> you know, cause, cause, no, <laughs> no, Al, Allie would not invite me anywhere. So. <laughs> but, uh, but Marie was, uh, was that person who invited you up and, and really got you started on your speaking career and sharing your stories in a way that really helped to invite and engage so many students and hopefully parents and others to reflect on our own behavior. Exactly. She is, she's the one that started it all. Yes. Yeah. But what are some, you know, what are some lessons that you feel like maybe you've learned that can uh, do maybe give our listeners some insights into how you live forward when a tragedy visits your life? When a tragedy such as this happens, it's monumental for us because sadly I have to live with the fact that if my cancer comes back, I may leave my daughter parentless. And some may say, well, it was the cancer that did that. When in reality, it was the 100% preventable car crash that did that. I wish people would just be a little bit more kind, appreciate life more, appreciate the relationships that they have more. You know, I look at life in a different perspective because I've lost so much. And I could possibly lose so much if my cancer comes back. Every day is a fight. And one thing, though, is Robin Roberts had a book out. She's the Good Morning America co-host called Everybody's Got Something. We all have something. No story is bigger or worse or more important than anybody else. Because what might be minute to one is on a grander scale to someone else. And if people took the time to understand that, we would be in a much better place in this world. People are having fights over politics and, you know, really, it's okay to disagree with somebody, but let's be kind about it. We're all human. We all bleed red and we all have something going on in our lives. Some people like me. I can't shut up about what happened. I That's just my personality. I hope to save some lives. Other people deal with it quietly. And you have to respect that. Just a little bit more respect goes a long, long way. And if just people would sit back and cherish what's in their life. One thing I do think, if they don't like something, say something. If it, If they are silent, then they're complicit. And that goes in any aspect. If you are in an unhappy marriage, then try to work at it. If you are in a job that you don't like, change it. Because at any minute, our lives can end. And, you know, if you don't do something to change it, then, then you know, you're just being complicit in your 
whether it's your self-misery or self-loathing or I just appreciate life more because I know how precious it is. And I don't want my daughter to, my daughter is now 11. She was six when it happened. And it's weird to say this, but I feel like my daughter is much, much more mature than most adults. And she had to grow up really, really fast saying goodbye to her mom that was supposed to die. Then had a great year. And then next thing you know, her, her life was shattered. And I can't be more proud of what she's doing. She's doing great in school. But there's a mountain of therapy, psychiatrists, counseling. And, you know, we just, I just wish everybody would have a little bit more kindness for each other because you just never know what somebody's going through. You know, even if you're on a bus or a train or, you know, you never know just giving that smile or that nod or have a nice day. I remember when I started my job, I was walking through a parking lot and I didn't know anybody. And I just said good morning to somebody. And that lady tracked me down later on that day or the next day, rather. And she said, if you didn't say hello to me, I was going home to commit suicide. And that always resonated with me that just a little bit more kindness and compassion. And, you know, some people complain, oh, well, when is she going to get over it? Listen, at the end of the day, I'm never going to get over it. We, my daughter and I will never, ever get over the loss of half of our family. So don't expect us to. Don't expect any parent or wife to get over this. And you know, either you're on board with them 100% or you can gracefully bow out and not be part of it at all. So I just really want people to be kind. The last two years in this country has been a roller coaster and it doesn't have to be that way. And you just never know something that you may say to somebody and then you'll never have that chance to apologize. Because you just never know what may happen. I never expected at 7.45 a.m. that morning that that would be the last time I'd see my husband and daughter. So all I could say is just be kind and gracious. Kind of reminds me, Pam, uh, something I try to remind myself of is when I say go to the post office to mail a package or going through a checkout line is always to check in on the, uh, the clerk. You know, how are you doing? How's your day going? Exactly. You know, is uh, just to remind ourselves that uh, those are fellow human beings that we're interacting in. And it's not simply a transaction of, okay, you know, I'm, I'm buying something and here's some money and that's that. But we're all human beings. Uh, I guess it's a, a in, a intentional attention, you know, that we need to be, exactly. we need to be intentional about acknowledging each other. And also right. uh, that's, uh, I think, uh, I mean, it's a pertinent, it's a powerful uh, message that we all need to simply take to heart. I want to kind of start winding down our conversation. And, you know, one of the ways uh, to do that for me is, is to simply ask you, uh, is there anything that you are thinking of that you say, well... I wouldn't want to end this conversation without having said this or shared this story. Is there anything that you're thinking of at this moment? 
Absolutely, there is. And I always typically end this. What, what, what happened the day of the crash was this person had drived for miles and miles and nobody, nobody called in this erratic or aggressive driver. Had one person dialed 911, you and I may not be having this conversation. And one of the things I'm sure in Nebraska, you know, people, there's traffic when there's a crash. And then you see people taking out their phones to videotape the crash as they're driving by. Or, you know, you have to think, could you have been the one that saw this car not driving correctly? Could you have been that person that could have called 911? And I want people to understand what it was like that people did not take out their phones to call 911. Like I said, this person was bouncing off the walls in the, the Holland Tunnel. Everybody in the world knows what the Holland Tunnel is. It's, you know, connecting Manhattan to New Jersey. It's a very famous tunnel. And if you just have the courage to intervene by dialing 911, instead of they were quick to take out their phones and take pictures before the police got there, before the sheet was draped over my husband's body, they were quick to take pictures of my dead husband bleeding from the neck bleeding from the face, and they posted it on social media. Then when they did get my daughter out, and before, you know, the police could surround her and the first responders and they're doing their job, people were posting pictures of my dead daughter strapped in her car seat. But had they been quick enough to call 911 when they saw the driver, because many witnesses came forward after that I didn't even know the state of New Jersey has an aggressive driving program. And if you dial pound seven, seven in New Jersey, I don't know about any other states. It will go to the nearest state trooper office and hopefully they can get somebody out there. People were so quick to use their technology, their phones. We are so addicted to our phones. If they just called 911, listen, take all the video you want because it could use be used in court as, you know, evidence. But it also could have prevented the crash as well, because they were just, you know, you can hear them on the video like, wow, look at this guy driving. He's driving erratically. But nobody called 911. And you and I may not be having this conversation. And uh, Pam, what you're sharing about, uh, I worked on a project couple decades ago, it was called flashing your brights. Uh, the whole idea behind flashing your brights, it had to do with uh, trying to address binge drinking issues on college campuses. Flashing your brights, that image or that metaphor of flashing your brights is that many of, hopefully many of our listeners, if not all of our listeners are you know, familiar, if you see an oncoming car without their lights on and you're driving at night, that it, you just flash your brights to try to get their attention so that hopefully they'll take responsibility and turn their lights on. Right. You know, sometimes uh, people can flash their brights many, many, many times and the person doesn't seem to get the message. The whole idea of calling 911, you know, fits within the, uh, the parameters of what it means to flash your brights is to do something that's in your power to do. You know, if you see somebody driving erratically, 
there's a reason why they're driving erratically. You may not be able to influence the reason why they're driving erratically, but you can do something about it in terms of, as you said, just making that call to 911. You know, a lot of times people are reluctant to call 911. It's like, well, we don't want to overwhelm the system or is this important enough? You know, the 911 operators, they're trained to prioritize those calls that come in so that, you know, if something needs immediate attention, it's going to get immediate attention. You know, when somebody's driving erratically, that's one of those things that uh, really screams for immediate attention. Right. So uh, to remind ourselves that, you know, if we see something that, whether it's erratic driving or any other kind of behavior on the road that causes us concern, it probably is causing other people concern as well. So, you know, if you can get a license number, get a license number and the, exactly. the make of uh, the make and color of the car and then pull over and make that call so you can do it safely so that you're not Absolutely. putting yourself in jeopardy or other people in jeopardy while you're making that call. But to pull over, if you've got the pertinent information, uh, you can give uh, law enforcement the information about what direction they were going on, whatever street it is that you're on so that they can begin to, to be on the lookout. So uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, pointing that out. There are things that are in our power to do. We just simply need to make the decision to say, yes, I'm going to do that because it's in my right. power to do. And it, right. can, uh, it can preserve a life. Yeah, all we have to do, again, I think is, is to think of the people that we love and who love us, and they should be our motivation because it could be any of us on any day, any time. A hundred percent agreed. Yep. Just, I wish people just had the courage to intervene, have, you know, the old adage from sadly, what came out of nine 11, if you see something, say something. And it still holds true today with so many different aspects of life. If you see something, say something. And I love the, the fact that you use the word courage because, uh, I, I'm into getting into the, the word roots of different words and the Latin word root for courage comes from the heart. Uh, the core. And, uh, you know, so to have courage is to really act from the heart. And, uh, you know, that's something that uh, goes beyond just simply trying to think everything out because uh, courage comes from the moment. I think we oftentimes can recognize when the moment is that calls for courage. So listen to our hearts and, and act that way. I want to ask you too, in, in uh, kind of wrapping up is, uh, what are things that our listeners could do to uh, support uh, the Catch You Later Foundation? Absolutely. We do have a website. Uh, it's www.catchyoulater.org. We are on Instagram as Catch You Later Foundation. We are also have a Facebook page, Catch You Later Foundation, and anybody can interact with us at any time. Email us. They can donate. It takes money to do what we do to give out scholarships and purchase those items, the goggles and stuff that we go out with. So we can use all the help we can get. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, and I hope our listeners will take that to heart and to recognize that there are ways that we can continue to support Pam uh, in her mission with the Catch You Later Foundation. We've had quite a conversation and I know uh, mm -hmm. I just really appreciated that opportunity to to more fully hear your story. You know, I think that the, the work that you're doing is, uh, it's amazing and necessary work. And I have every confidence uh, for your relationship with Allie as she uh, continues to grow. Uh, I think I can speak as, uh, as a parent who's 
you know, our children are in their uh, late twenties and early thirties now. I think it's, it's the work that you put in when they're young right. that really pays off when they mature into adults, that you can have a relationship like you never imagined was, was possible and all. And so I, I certainly hope and uh, pray that that happens with you and, uh, and with Allie and that your, your health uh, continues to be good and allow you to do the things that you have a passion for and that benefits so many people. Uh, I'm sure uh, in an untold number of people many who have never had the chance to thank you personally for sharing your story and affecting their lives. And uh, I'm grateful that you have uh, turned that energy as you have grieved and continue to grieve Tim's and, and Bridget's deaths, that you've really turned that into an energy that is inspiring, that really inspirits people with uh, uh, hopefully a, a greater passion for life themselves. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for having me and sharing all well, of this. It, it's, it's a grace, a privilege, a blessing, and an honor. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I can't, I honestly can't wait to meet you in person, just give you a big old hug. <laughs> and hopefully we'll be in a good space where, where, where <laughs> hugs are not only necessary, but, uh, but we can just make them happen. And, uh, you know, we I won't be so. wearing out our elbows. <laughs> 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 Pam, I'm sure this isn't the last conversation we'll have. I hope not. You're stuck with yeah. me now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place to be stuck, Pam. It really is. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you're me. welcome. And we'll stay in touch. Take care. Well, I want to thank you all for listening in today and being able to hear uh, Pam's story and learn more about the Catch You Later Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with me at Keep Kids Alive Drive 25, again, I'm Tom Everson. You can reach me through our uh, website, uh, kkad25.org, which is short for Keep Kids Alive Drive 25.org. And you can always email me at tom at kkad25, that's kkad25.org. And uh, happy to hear from you. Visit our website for a lot more information about uh, how you can get your community involved in a traffic safety campaign right in your own neighborhood or throughout your whole community and plenty of information there to share with you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to make a donation to the mission of Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 going and growing, you can do that by clicking on the donate button at kkad25.org. Thank you for listening. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids. It's about safety. It's about caring. It's about time.